0: Hello listeners, this is Chris Miller, co-host of your all-time favorite podcast, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. If you like what you hear and you want to lend your support, please go to patreon.com slash trrpod, and for as little as $1 a month, you can receive early access to new episodes as well as exclusive bonus content. That's right, it's a dollar. Come on, you have that much money right now in that weird little gap between your driver's seat and your center console. It's probably rattling around the dryer right now. If you have a dog, there's a good chance that it has eaten that much change at least once in its life. So for your beloved pet's sake, consider going to patreon.com slash trrpod and giving us that dollar instead. Your dog will thank you, and so will I. And now, on with the show. century, on the industrialized battlefield hell of the World Wars, men fought men. But in the years in between, there was a time when men fought birds. Huge, fast, terrifying birds. From Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, I'm Rob North, and this is your extra ration of the Australian Emu War. Animal calls are nothing new, having become a sad but necessary fact of life as human sprawl continues to butt up against the natural world. In recent years, We've seen the calling of badgers in Britain as they threatened to spread a lethal variant of TB among the sheep and cattle populations, the elimination of millions of fowl in the wake of the avian flu epidemic, and a short time in Texas will help you shed any idea that feral hogs are seen as anything but pests to be shot from helicopters, particularly in groups of 30 to 50. One call, however, took on the flavor of a full-on combined arms military operation. In Western Australia in, Australia in 1932, the local grain farmers were having a string of problems. A poor rainy season had left the soil somewhat dry, and good growing areas were limited. While this wasn't yet a famine situation, it meant that the farmers were keen to protect what they had, particularly because the global economic fallout from the Great Depression had caused a sharp drop in wheat prices, and subsidies promised by the Australian government had failed to materialize. Then word came of another far more sinister threat, the emu. If you're not familiar with what an emu looks like, then I suggest you do a Google image search, but avoid doing so in dark rooms or around small children. Emus are massive, flightless birds that can grow to a height of more than 6 feet and can weigh more than 130 pounds. They have long legs capped with vicious, curved claws capable of inflicting terrible wounds, and emus are generally considered to be... ornery. Emus, when disturbed, will fight if they feel like it. If you ever needed proof that dinosaurs still do indeed walk among us, then emus are that proof. Much of Western Australia's best farmland sat on the main migratory route that emus would take after their breeding season from the interior country out to the coast. And drought conditions had caused the birds to mass in far more concentrated way than usual. With flocks of up to 20,000 birds threatening to overwhelm the intervening farmland, and they would indeed overwhelm the farmland. Emus are grazers, and when they find a rich source of their favorite foods, they can strip fields many acres in size in a matter of hours. Not only that, but they have a tendency to tear down fencing, leaving anything that was left of the crops vulnerable to other forms of wildlife. The untimely arrival of a flock of emus could render a farmer destitute, and bigger flocks of emus were headed into the area than had ever been seen before. So a deputation of farmers, who all happened to be veterans of the First World War, traveled to the offices of the Ministry of Defense, claiming that the only way for their crops to survive would be the deployment of the Australian military. Sir George Pierce, the defense minister, agreed under a few conditions. The deployed soldiers would be supported by posses of recruited farmers who would be paid for their services, minus the cost of weapons and ammunition. Also, the deployed soldiers would be fed and housed by the farmers. And finally, the government would be given free reign to film and document the operation. An initial operational goal of 20,000 dead emus was decided upon, hoping that this would be sufficient to break up the large flocks and defuse the movement of the birds. But typed orders would note specifically that the numbers could be amended upwards, depending on just how successful the operation was. In several ways, Australia had the right resources for the job. The first resource was men. Hundreds of thousands of Australians had experience with military operations, having been First World War vets, and had seen action in Africa, in the Gallipoli operations, or on the Western Front. Many of these men had been hit hard by the Depression and were looking for work, and so would be willing and able volunteers, highly trained in marksmanship and small unit tactics. The second major resource that Australia had in spades was surplus military equipment, much of which included some of the most lethal and effective weapons of the First World War battlefields. This included the Lewis gun, a light and portable air-cooled machine gun capable of laying down a withering barrage of 600 rounds a minute and able to work in any environment. There was also the short magazine Lee Enfield rifle, known affectionately in Australian service as the Smelly. Able to deliver 303 caliber rounds out to a lethal range of 2,000 meters as fast as the user could work the bolt, perfect for the kind of rifle training common among Australian vets. The military also had, for the first time, a large amount of motor vehicles to hand, from from trucks to motorcycles to the Rolls-Royce Type A armored car, carrying a pair of Vickers-heavy machine guns and up to 3,000 rounds of ammo. The arsenal set aside for the operation included dozens of machine guns, dozens of vehicles, thousands of rifles, and over a million rounds of ammunition. It looked like the birds wouldn't stand a chance. By October of 1932, the first group of soldiers had been deployed to the area, and gangs of veteran bird hunters were being organized. The first shots of the Emu War were fired on the 2nd of November, when a truck carrying the commander of the operation, Major Meredith, of the 7th Heavy Battery, Royal Australian Artillery, and a squad of his men, armed with two Lewis guns and 10,000 rounds of ammo, uh, went out to where a flock of some 50 Emus had been sighted. Dismounting from the truck, the men approached carefully, only to have the wary birds move away, but deciding that the engagement range over open ground was close enough, Major Meredith ordered the men to fire by bursts at 500 yards. The first burst felled several of the birds, and the next burr zeroed in on nothing. In a whirlwind of dust and panic cries that sounded what I can, like what I can only describe as a constipated goat with a trombone taped to its mouth, the emus had taken off at very high speed. And when I say very high speed, I mean very high speed. What the planners of the Great Cull had failed to take into account was the sheer speed of emus across open ground like the Australian Outback, which can reach over 35 miles an hour. And the animals were capable of quick changes of direction and coordinated group movement. With the current methods and equipment to hand, this meant there were going to be some problems. While the marksmanship amongst participants was usually very good against stationary targets or a laden down enemy soldier slogging his way across no man's land, it's a hell of a lot harder to lead a target that's moving at highway speed. Not only that, but the horses and even the motor vehicles present weren't going to be able to keep up. To add insult to injury, as Meredith and his men watched their quarry disappear into the distance, Several of the birds that had been knocked over by the first salvo got up off the ground and took off running as well, showing a remarkable resilience to bullet wounds. Despite emptying four full drums of Lewis gun ammo, 400 rounds in all, the only thing Meredith and his men had to show for it was two, yes, two, dead emus. A change in tactics was required. Using their customary, no worries, mate, attitude, Meredith and his men spent the next two days gathering intel on emu movements and planned an ambush. A flock of over a thousand emus was lured into a valley with a dam at one end, the fresh drinking water a draw for the migrating birds. Keeping his men quiet, Meredith was able to get the birds to come closer to where he had six Lewis guns and 50 riflemen in place. As the flock approached within 100 yards, the order to fire was preempted by a strangled hoot of alarm for one of the flock's alpha females, and the giant birds took off again at high speed directly towards Meredith and his men. The belated fire command was given and some birds were killed, but within a few seconds hundreds of huge angry birds with sharp claws came stampeding through the men's position, giving them no option but to duck and cover as they were overwhelmed in a maelstrom of dust, feathers, and literal angry birds. By the time the men recovered their senses, having been battered but suffering no serious injuries, the massive flock had passed through and scattered, leaving behind about a dozen dead emus. Meredith, one imagines throwing his hat in the dirt Yosemite Sam style, decided he needed to call in the big guns, literally. And what began was a bizarre arms race between the increasingly powerful military machinery and what seemed to be guerrilla tactics on the part of the Emus. The Australians attached Lewis guns to the sidecars of motorcycles that they hoped could keep up with the fleeing flocks of birds, which they did until the birds broke off into small groups fleeing in many different directions. Aircraft of the Royal Australian Air Force were brought in. Bristol Bulldog biplane fighters capable of tracking and strafing the flocks of Emus and dropping bombs. These planes worked for about a minute. When the planes approached to machine gun the birds from on high, the emus would instinctively spread out over a wider area, rendering the aerial attacks almost completely ineffective. Surplus Stokes' trench mortars, able to fire a 6-pound explosive shell 2,000 yards, were brought in to hammer the birds, but they simply moved too fast and could change direction too quickly for the barrages to be effective. Finally, Meredith brought in what was surely going to be his trump card a battery of 18-pounder field howitzers with a range of over six miles and able to land a barrage that would see swathes of birds disappear in fiery, feather-laden death. Coordinating with a spotter plane to track the distant Emus, on November 16th, the artillery battery received a fire mission on a flock about a 1,000 birds strong. This was going to be the death blow and the illustration of the power of 20th-century combined arms warfare. With a barked order of fire, the howitzers roared, their payload arcing through the air towards the unknowing enemy. The shells landed on target to no other effect than a few puffs of dust, the alarmed birds taking off running at top speed. The battery had been issued with mislabeled dummy practice rounds, their explosive payloads removed and filled with inert concrete. Faced with a series of failures amounting costs, the cast-strapped Australian government, who signaled they were unwilling to supply further efforts, after some four weeks, called on Major Meredith to end the operation. The lowball original goal of 20,000 dead birds had drastically eluded the participants. Although Meredith's after-action report would give a number of 986 dead emus and 9,860 rounds expended, a ratio of exactly 10 bullets per emu, more impartial analyses estimated roughly 15,000 rounds and hundreds of pounds of bombs, mortar shells, and dummy howitzer rounds expended for about 450 dead birds, many of whom have been shot by farmers who weren't part of the effort, but whose kills were counted anyway. Meredith later wrote in his diary, quote, The machine gunner's dreams of point-blank fire into serried masses of emus were soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics, and its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. The crestfallen field force therefore withdrew from the combat area after a month. If we had a a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns... With the invulnerability of tanks. End quote. In a strange final twist, this massive failure had actually managed to sort of do the job. The efforts of the men who were outrun, outsmarted, and in the case of Meredith's failed ambush, outfought by flocks of migrating emus actually managed through their failed attacks to cause the flocks of emus to spread out, lowering the concentration and causing the path to be wider, but with fewer birds in any given area. This meant that while most farmers had some issues with emus getting into their crops, Almost no one had their fears of massed flocks picking their fields clean. Realized. Everybody lost a little bit, but no one lost everything. Through the 1930s, advances in exclusion fencing and the implementation of a civilian bounty system for killing emus helped to solve the problem of the migrating avian hordes, and regular calls stopped by the 1950s as their migratory paths changed and conservation efforts changed the public viewpoint, rendering the emu a protected species. And so ends the story of the Australian Emu War, which reminds us that while we may consider ourselves to have mastered nature, there are many ways in which nature proves us wrong. And sometimes, nature's method is big, angry, and covered in feathers. Thanks for listening to this Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades Extra Ration. I've been your host, Rob North. Please listen to all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at trrpod, on Twitter at podcasttrr, or search on Facebook under Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. If you have any episode suggestions, feedback, correction, or declarations of undying eternal love, send us an email at trrpod at gmail.com. And for access to early episode releases, exclusive content, and other goodies, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash trrpod. We'll see you next time. And until then, as always, hold fast.